today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning, everybody. In case you're new or visiting, I haven't had a chance to introduce myself to you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Carson Valley Bible Church, and it is a joy to be able to be back in the pulpit. Um, I've had the last two Sundays off uh, from preaching, which I'm pretty sure might be the longest um, stretch I've actually had since uh, becoming the pastor here, and so I'm just eager to get back in the pulpit. It's one of my great delights to, uh, to be with you guys. So if you guys can, go ahead and find your Bible or app or scripture journal and open it up to the book of Exodus, Exodus Genesis. <laughs> Exodus is what I'm reading through my discipleship group, but Genesis is where we're going to be at today. Genesis chapter 23, which if you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 16. 16. And in case you do not have one, um, as a church, when we walk through a a book of the Bible, we try to hand out these uh, scripture journals that just have that book. So we have a whole bunch of Genesis scripture journals. So if you do not have one of those, please uh, see the Connect desk, and they would be happy to give you one of those. And that's simply a gift from us to you that you can use however you wish. On a Sunday, I know a lot of people like to take notes, sermon notes and knows. Some people use it just as private devotional where they record their prayers. But that is our gift to you, so please grab one of those if you don't have one already. All right. Now, as you are turning to Genesis 23, I do want to give us a little bit of a longer intro because it has been a few weeks since we've been in Genesis. As many of you know, we've been marching through Genesis. We actually started this last January, and we've been, we marched through as much as we could in 2022, and we took breaks along the way to dive into other books or topics. And then for Advent, uh, we paused on Genesis so we could focus in on the glory of Christ, which I pray was edifying and encouraging to all of you. But we do want to get back into Genesis. If if you're like me, if you've slept since then, you may have forgotten some things about Genesis, what it's all about. And so let me give a quick flyover about what is the book of Genesis trying to communicate. Well, first things, it's a book about God, church. It's a book about God, about the God of all of creation, the almighty, eternal God who created everything in which we get to delight in. He created the earth, right? He created the seas, the land, the animals, humanity, and everything that God created was good, was good. But God gave very special attention to the creation of humanity because it was only humanity, we are told, that was actually made in the image of God. And what that means simply for us today is that humanity, unlike any other creation, was created for a purpose to glorify in a unique way its creator. It's why as Christians we take life so seriously, why we're proponents of life from all stages, because humanity is created in the image of God. But not long after God created everything, Genesis, our very first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against their creator, 
They sinned against God, believed that they could do better, did not trust what God told them was good and fruitful in the garden and said, you know what, Lord, we think we can do better than that. And they listened to the lies and they sinned against God. And we are reminded that we're just like Adam and Eve, aren't we? Have been tempted and have dove into that temptation to believe that maybe God doesn't have our best for us in mind, that we could do better if we go outside of what he commands us. But when Adam and Eve sinned, sin fractured everything. Sin broke the world in every respect. But yet we learn in those very first chapters that God had a plan, though. God was not surprised by the sin of humanity, and rather he stepped into that sin and said, I'm going to give you a promise. The promise to reverse what Adam and Eve did. The promise to defeat the very enemy that introduced this idea of rebellion against God into the world. And he promised them that through the line of Eve, one day someone would come to conquer Satan, sin, and death. All products of sin itself. Theologians refer to this as the fall. The fall. And then from Genesis 3 forward, we see God protecting that promise. Even though humanity, as they continued to multiply and fill the earth, sin continued to multiply and fill the earth. And even though they were sinning and sinning and rebelling and rebellion to the point where God ended up, out of his wrath and judgment for that sin, flooded the world, he did spare one family. And he spared that one family because he was continuing his promise promised to bring about a savior, promised to bring about a Messiah. And then in Genesis 12, God's word zoomed in on one particular man and family, the man Abram, or what we now refer to as Abraham, and his wife Sarah. And it was to them that the covenant promise of redemption that was initially given in Genesis 3 was expanded and clarified. Because God spoke specifically to Abraham and he said, to you, Abraham, and to your family, I'm committing to you. I'm committing to you, Abraham, that you are going to be a federal head, a representative of what will become a nation after me, a people that are mine and belong to me. We also saw that God promised Abraham that he would have a land given to him, the land of Canaan. A promised land, a land in where man and God would be able to dwell together based off of God's provision. And lastly, God promised Abraham that through his family line would come the one that was promised in Genesis 3, the one who would bless not just the nation that Abraham would be the federal head of, but would bless all the nations of the world. And as we learned about Abraham in our last section, Abraham had some wonderful times of trusting God, didn't he? Some wonderful moments of being able to place his faith and trust into the one that promised all of this to him. But we also know that Abraham is just like all of us. And even though we have God's promises, even though we've seen God move in our lives, we've still been tempted to wander from him, to not trust him in certain circumstances and situations. And so Abraham also sinned at times. But yet at Genesis 21 is when we finally saw a promised son born between Abraham and Sarah, the boy named Isaac. And then last time we were in Genesis, Genesis 22, 
we saw this mountaintop experience, didn't we? Where God commanded Abraham in this test of faith to go up to this mountain and even to offer up his son Isaac for the sins of the people, we saw God demonstrate that, that he is faithful to his promise. And we saw God demonstrate what one day he would do for all of us. Because Abraham ended up not having to sacrifice his son Isaac because God provided a substitute instead, a ram, which was a picture, a foreshadow of what God the Father would do with Jesus. That instead of us having to bear the punishment for our sins, Jesus was a substitute in our place. Over and over again, church, we have seen what the posters next to me represent. Promises made and promises kept. And church, that's what we're going to just continue to look at in Genesis through the lens of promises made and promises kept. And we want to do that as Christians. Because here's point number two of the intro, is that we are reading Genesis as Christians. As Christians. And here's what I mean by that. We don't believe that Genesis is a standalone book. Even though we believe it's an historical book. Even though we believe it's real people, real time. Genesis is one book of the story of redemption. And so we as Christians get to look back at Genesis, but look back at Genesis from the lens in which we get to have in human history and knowing much of where the story goes. Because even though this is an historical book, we have seen that there's many types and shadows that point forward to Jesus that are ultimately only fulfilled and experienced in him, aren't they? Even Jesus himself told us that Genesis bears witness about who? Himself. And so church, as we continue to march through Genesis, remember, we're reading Genesis as Christians. As Christians. And if you're not a Christian this morning, or maybe you're just not quite sure where you're at, one is, you are welcome here. I'm glad you're here. I hope this is a place for you to really be able to dive in and learn more about Jesus and, and the Bible but Genesis is a really good book for you to study with us. Because as I mentioned, it's a book about Jesus ultimately. It's a book pointing us forward to him. And so we join, ask that you just join us in that as much as you can. All right, I think that's my intro. I think I've covered everything. You guys are roughly caught up on Genesis. So let me go ahead and just pray for our time before I read Genesis 23. And as I pray for you, will you guys pray for me? And then we'll read, I'll read the text for us. Well, Father, as we dive back into this wonderful book in which you've given your people, God, we thank you for that. We thank you for all the ways that we can trust you, for all the ways that your word reveals how we can trust you because it reveals who you are. And so, Lord, help us understand who you are better today. Circumstances, history, for sure. But most importantly, that we want to understand you more. So God, I pray for every man, woman, child in the room this morning, and even those who had to watch online because of the, the icy conditions. God, I pray that through your spirit, Lord, that you would just give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and you would illuminate the text for us to see it as it was meant to be seen and understood. 
God, we also want to pray for our kiddos next door and all the teachers that are leading them. Just wonder what a wonderful gift it is just to have young hearts be able to have opportunity to learn about their creator alongside us. So God, give those teachers wisdom to know how to show them the God of Genesis too as they're studying the same thing that we are in here. Because maybe some would consider this big church and that little church, at the end of the day, we're just all one church. So Lord, help us understand you and maybe walk out of here today loving you more than we first walked in. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, hopefully you guys have found your way to Genesis 23. Let me go ahead and just read through the whole chapter for us to start, and then we'll, we'll walk through it accordingly. Sarah lived 120 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiroth Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me for Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a bearing place. Verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Verse 20, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a bearing place by the Hittites. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, we're thankful for God's word. Now, what I'd like to do, just the remainder of the time that we have together, 
is really look at this chapter under that overall heading of the promise continues. The promise continues. Because what I believe, church, is that Genesis 23 is showing us how to Abraham and to his people, God's promise continues despite these difficult circumstances of death. But we're also going to see how even to us as Christians today, what we're seeing here is the God who also continues his promises to us. So let's, let me just point out a few things from the text itself. Because Genesis 23, as we just read, is, is all about the burial of Sarah, right? It's about Abraham wanting to buy a piece of land, wanting to buy a place that he could call his own and bury his wife there. And so Genesis 23.1 starts out with saying that all the years of Sarah were 20 127 years. Now, quick Bible fact is Sarah is the only woman in the Bible that we are told her lifespan. The only woman where we are told of her age when she died. So clearly, Sarah is an important person in redemptive history. If we don't have time today, but if we were to jump over to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, which is often considered this hall of faith where the author looks back at these Old Testament figures and saying, hey, remember their faith. Remember their faith. Sarah is one of two women that are mentioned in that Hebrews 11 passage. So Sarah plays this unique role of redemptive history. And Abraham in our text says that he's grieving right, over the, his wife. He's grieving over her death. Don't forget, these are real people. It is very likely that Abraham and Sarah had been married over a hundred years at the time of her death. Listen, Gina and I have been married 11 years today. Thank you. But like Abraham and Sarah, and like many of your marriages here, we're just babies, right? In, in, that, in that wonderful road of marriage. And so even with the 11 years, I can only imagine the true grief in which Abraham is experiencing at this moment, that he's grieving over his wife. I know for many of you in this room, you've had to bury a spouse And you know the incredible difficulty that comes with those moments. And I want to point out to you that the Bible does not shy away from that. It doesn't say that Abraham was in sin for mourning and crying over his wife, but rather highlights it as a truth of reality. And so we as people, it's okay to grieve over the people you lose. It's okay to mourn them. But Abraham is what we'll see as he mourns with hope church. He mourns with the hope and the promise of God that hangs over him. That even though there certainly is this overwhelming grief of losing his wife, he knows that he has the umbrella of God's promise that is still intact, still remaining. And it says in verse 2 that through this mourning and weeping over his wife, he seeks out to to bury her, a place to bury her. But notice how the author points out that Sarah died in the land of Canaan. And at the end of our chapter, it says that Abraham buried her in the land of Canaan. 
Because although Canaan, this land that they had been sojourners in, none of it belonged to them. But remember that promise that God had given them back in Genesis 12. That one day this would be the land that would belong to them. Even in our text, Abraham, as he's talking to the council, he refers to himself as a sojourner, right? A guest in the land that he does not have rights. He has no deed of parcels to his name. But he does say, and we see just through his own heart, that he believes this is his home, though. That he wants to bury his wife here in the land of Canaan. It would have been very custom to, to take your, your dead and, and take them back to your homeland where you have these, these pieces of land that belong to you and to your family. But Abraham doesn't do that because he knows his home is no longer back there. His home is Canaan because that's what God has promised him. And so even though he hasn't seen the full reality of it, he's still trusting in the promises of God. And that God is faithful to that. That this land will be their home one day. And Abraham had this, this reality, this, this faith instilled in him. And, and I do want to take you to this portion of Hebrews 11. It will be on the screen, Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8, where we, the author comments about this reality that was living inside of the heart of Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as, a foreign, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10. This one's important. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. See, Abraham didn't have everything completed in this moment. But he knew that God does not lie. And so he looked forward to the promises of God that will one day be realized. And so under that promise of hope, Abraham sought a place to bury his wife a place that would one day ultimately belong to him. And so in verses 3 through 16, what we see is Abraham going to this council of Hittites. We're told these are the, the group of people that were ruling the land at this moment. And Abraham began to make his case, didn't he? Now clearly, Abraham had a good reputation among the Hittites, didn't he? And they even referred to him in verse 6 as a prince of God. Might have heard of all the ways in which God had intervened and provided for him and his family over the years. And essentially, the Hittites, what did they do? They said, Abraham, take whatever you want. Whatever burial plot you want for your wife, go ahead and take it. It's yours. But Abraham didn't want to be given anything. He did not want to be gifted land. He wanted to buy land. He wanted to buy a plot at a fair price that him and his family could take possession of. And so he clarifies this in verse 9 by saying, well, I have something in mind. A guy named Ephron owns it. It's a cave, the cave of Machpelah. I want to buy that from him. Now, Ephron was in attendance here, as we read, and, and he continued this discussion with Abraham. 
And like the rest of the Hittites, Ephron said, Abraham, you don't have to pay me for this. I'll, I'll just give it to you. You can have it. But Abraham refused the gift. And why did he do that? Because he knew that if he did not pay a fair, pray, fair price for the land, down the road, the descendants of Ephron could say, well, we didn't agree to this. And they could make a case and take the land back from Abraham. Much like if you make an agreement with your neighbor about something today, if it's not a legal contract, the next neighbor might not hold to it as well. And so Abraham refused the gift and says, I want to pay for it. And then Ephron kind of mentions, well, what, you know, what is 400 shekels of silver between us anyways? Which is a lot of money, by the way. And Abraham, there it is. If that's what you think the land is worth, that's a fair price. He starts counting out all of the money, right? All of the silver. He, he counts out right in front of them. It says, here it is. Here it is, Ephron. Here's all of the silver. Now, many scholars have really speculated. Is this a fair price? Is Ephron taking advantage of Abraham and his desire to buy land? Well, maybe, certainly. But it's really hard to, to read back into right, ancient literature and understand land values. But I think because of just the way that we're told about the specifics of this, this was a lot of money. And it likely would have been more than any other Hittite would have paid for a piece of land. But Abraham pays for it. And how does he do that, church? He does that through the resources in which God has given Abraham and Israel over the, over the years, or at least you know, Abraham's family that would become Israel. See, God has always been providing for them always been remaining true to his promise. And here he's able to steward the resources that God has given him to pay for this plot of land that really serves as a down payment of what God will do in the coming years. So Abraham doesn't flinch. He counts out the money. He gives it to them. And then we read at the end of our chapter, what does he do? He buries his wife Sarah there. It's his. It's his possession it belongs to Abraham, the cave of Machpelah. It's a cave that, if we were to continue reading in our Bibles through the rest of Genesis, you would see that it wasn't just Sarah who was buried there, but Abraham would be buried there, Isaac would be buried there, Jacob would be buried there, Rebecca, Leah. They would all be buried there. And then if we were to go all the way to the book of Joshua, you would see that one day, this land of Canaan would be given over to all of Israel. God would make good on his promise that this would belong to them. And you can read about that in Joshua 21. But what's the big idea here in Genesis? Like, what's the big idea of us looking and considering this? Well, I think for Abraham, we have to remember and contemplate that for Abraham, death does not nullify the promises of God. Tough circumstances does not nullify the promises of God. Even on the darkest days, he still trusted that God was good and God would make good on his promises. So that's one thing for Abraham. But what about us? What about us? Well, certainly a lot of those things apply to us as well. But we must ask ourselves here is, 
if we're reading this as Christians, what does Genesis 23 have to do with us? Right? What does Genesis have to do with us as Christians living in the year 2023? Why should we care about this moment? Or more importantly, why did the Holy Spirit inspire this text to now be read and used for the worship and glory of God today? I think these are important questions that we should look back as Christians when we read the Old Testament. Why is this here? Why is this here? Is it just to carry along the historical narrative of Abraham and his people? Certainly. That is certainly a huge role of that. But I think we can zoom out a little bit here, Genesis 23, and see how it is another stepping stone of that long road of redemption that leads us to Christ. Because where was Jesus born? He was born in the land of Canaan. This land was used, much like the family of Abraham, was used to bring about the Messiah, to bring about Jesus throughout history. And then what happens when Jesus gets on the scene? Well, we're told that he is the inaugurator and establisher of a new and better covenant. That Jesus is the one that was promised in Genesis 3 but also the one that will carry on the promise of Genesis 12, that God will provide a land for God and humanity to dwell together away from the presence and dominion of sin. Jesus tried to communicate this reality, that he was establishing a better covenant, even talking about a a more robust land when he started teaching about the kingdom of God. Let me show you one from Matthew 5, 5. Jesus is teaching his disciples. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So all of a sudden we're learning that God's plan of redemption does not include just the land of Canaan, or what's now referred to as the Holy Land at large now, Certainly, it's a part of that. But Jesus says, oh, I don't stop there. My plan's for the whole earth. That's why when Jesus sent out his disciples, do you remember where he told them to go with the good news of himself? To the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. You see, God's plan of having a people and having a place where they would be able to dwell and call their own has been carrying through not only Genesis, but even to this day. And so we, as Christians today, we're, we're in a similar position as Abraham is where we have received much, but we're still awaiting the full realization of God's promise. This is what Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3.13. It'll be on the screen as well. He says, but according to his promise, it's not there? Okay, I didn't put it there then. Just listen. 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So like Abraham, we are continuing to hold on to the promises of God. That our hope, like Abraham, is beyond death. That death does not mark the end of God's promise, but we trust it even beyond the grave. Even beyond the tomb like Abraham, 
as though he even, although he buried his wife there, as we saw in Hebrews 11, he was longing for the day for God to make good on his promises, to have a city that was not built by man, but built by God himself. And so we too are awaiting for God's promise to redeem this broken world, to redeem a world for his people, to remove not only the power of sin, but also the presence of sin. God removed the power of sin at the cross when he defeated it and atoned for it. That sin no longer has authority over you, Christian. It no longer condemns you because Jesus was condemned in your place. But we all know that we certainly still live in the presence of sin, don't we? That all it may not have power and authority as which it once did, the presence of it still, we feel it every day. But we, like Abraham, have a down payment of what God would do. But our down payment, church, is way better than silver. Scripture calls the Holy Spirit a down payment for Christians. That when God ascended back to his throne, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to indwell in believers to be a down payment. Saying, I'm coming back. I'm indwelling you. You can trust me that I'm going to make good on my promises. And so that means for every Christian in the room this morning, there's hope, right? We have hope because we have a better down payment, right? We have hope that when what God had did through his life, death, and resurrection serves as this momentous hope that we long and hold on to as we await this reality of a new heavens and new earth. It's why, Christian, it's why, Christian, that this world as it is right now will never ultimately feel like home because it's not supposed to. You were meant for a new heavens and a new earth that is to come. And so we wait and we long for that. But we long for it with hope and the promise that's been given to us. And if you're not a Christian this morning, let me speak to you real quick. If you're not a Christian this morning, the bad news is for you is that this world it's not going to give you what you think it will give you. In fact, you will be greatly disappointed if your hope is only in this world as it is now. It will never be able to deliver what you hope it will. It will never give you what you think it will give, try to give you. Listen, we live in a culture that spends millions, billions of dollars, if you will, on trying to convince you that this world will give you what you want every single day. And I want to stand in front of you right here and say, don't believe the lie. Believe in the promise of God. Yes, God has sent us here now. Yes, we will be the best citizens as we can now here. But our ultimate citizenship is not here. It's for a world to come. And we long for that. And when we're focused on that, we actually do a whole lot of earthly good. Jesus is better. He's better than what this world has to offer. Now just to, to wrap us up here real quick. You see, Abraham, he was placing this, this hope in a tomb that he was going to fill with his wife and, and ultimately himself and and his descendants, and, and he was placing that under the promises of God, as we just read. 
So his hope was being, having this tomb filled. But here's the unique thing for us, church, as Christians. We, too, get a look to a tomb and rejoice in today. But it's not a tomb that we're looking to fill. It's actually a tomb that has been filled by Jesus, but now sits empty because he's not there. You see, church, we get this unique, redemptive look. You see, the language, right? Why in the world would God care about us learning about the tomb of Machpelah? Because it points to a greater tomb that's empty today. Because it reminds us of a throne that's occupied because the tomb is empty. Right? The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It shows us, right, that he is good on his promises. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians church calls the resurrection of Jesus the first fruits of what will happen to us. Another down payment, if you will, of what God is going to do that he's not done, just like he's not done with Abraham. And we'll continue to see those promises be displayed and clarified and built upon in the coming weeks. But I want you guys to leave here today with great encouragement, knowing that the promise continues. It continued for Abraham, and it continues for us. Let me just read one more passage of Scripture, which we've read many times, but this is at the very end of your Bibles, Revelation 21. But we're told the end. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. See, in John's vision here at the last book of the Bible, notice that there is no, I hope this happens. I think this is what will happen. But John says, this is what happens. And so let's continue to stand among a long line of saints, people who have placed their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, that he will make good on his promises. All right, let's go ahead and end there. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, as we end our time in your word, we're thankful for it. And we want to delight in all the ways that it has reminded us and pointed us to you. God, we are people who are quick to forget. Help, help us remember. Help us trust. God, I pray that you would even bring people to a, to a spot for the first time, if they've never, to really place their trust in you, Jesus not in this world, not in the things that it promises to give them, but to you who has given us everything already and continues to say, trust me, come to me. Lord, what a gift it is to be able to know you and delight in you. And it's in your mighty name I pray. Amen.